A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what is seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this evening we're continuing in St. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. And last week we looked at the suffering that Paul has been enduring as a way of making clear that the power of the gospel resides in God alone. And we saw that Paul has been pressing into the very thing that the Corinthians find embarrassing, his weakness and suffering at every turn. But he's doing so because in it he is bearing in his body the death of Jesus so that the resurrection life of Jesus can be on display in him as well. So tonight, or this morning rather, we're going to spend time looking at the thing that has propelled St. Paul through all of these trials, which is his eschatological hope in the resurrection of the dead. When Paul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, his entire worldview changed because he encountered someone who was from his future. He was waiting for the resurrection in the future, but now Christ has resurrected already, and it changes everything about how Paul goes about living his life, and it gives him a hope that allows him to counteract the death that is all around him and at work in his own body. To drive his point home, Paul makes use of the Septuagint's translation of our 116th Psalm. The psalmist begins by saying, Pangs of death have encompassed me, affliction and grief have I found, and on the name of the Lord have I called, Ah, Lord, rescue my soul. I believed... Therefore I spoke, but I was brought very low. That line that Paul says, I believed and therefore I spoke, is rooted in being surrounded by suffering and torture and persecution and yet trusting in God's goodness. The psalmist, in fact, goes on to say that he is a slave of the Lord and that he will seek to drink from the cup of deliverance and offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. We saw that last week in Paul's letter, too, right? That he doesn't proclaim himself, but Christ as Lord with himself as the slave of the church for the sake of Christ. This psalm, like really, in a sense, the entire Psalter, is a book about Christ. 
It is about Jesus. It is the things that Jesus thought and said to his Father as he lived on earth. And so here St. Paul applies that same hope that was in the psalmist and then in Christ and then includes himself. It's this hope in the midst of trial to the resurrection of Jesus. He includes himself within the death and therefore the resurrection of Christ. And it is right here that the hope of all God's people finds its footing. That death will not have the final word. We also believe and so we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. That is Paul's hope. That is why he is able to suffer all of these things for the sake of Christ and his church. The work of the Spirit mediating Christ's resurrection life in Paul is so palpable that Paul can say that even though outwardly he is wasting away and his suffering is constant and ongoing, inwardly he's being renewed day by day. As we said last week, Paul's body was mangled and disfigured and likely in constant excruciating pain, and yet he can say that this is a slight and momentary affliction that has been preparing him for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. I mean, this is absolutely stunning to me. How can Paul say that this is a slight and momentary affliction? How is he able to maintain this kind of hope in the midst of total lack and degrading suffering? Well, he gives us a metaphorical hint. It's that Paul has had his eyes trained to look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. This is a paradoxical metaphor. To look at what cannot be seen is one of the most important and one of the most difficult aspects of Christian discipleship. And it's important to note, it isn't something that just happens. It takes practice. Paul was involved in practice. You have to cultivate the vision of eschatological hope, and that requires discipline. If we take Paul's whole letter to the Corinthians seriously, then we also have to say that it requires weakness. Because if we're going to have hope, we have to have some sense that we can't do it in ourselves. It requires a repentance and an alertness to the brokenness of the world. It requires, as Paul says elsewhere, being crucified with Christ. Being able to look at what cannot be seen requires being crucified with Christ. Building habits to see the eternal rather than the immediate is a difficult task. But I think it is made all the more difficult by our wealth, by our addiction to distraction and entertainment, and our self protective insulation from vulnerability, and a willful blindness to the world's brokenness. As I've been considering this week, this radical hope of Paul that so marked him as a person filled with joy in the midst of hardship and perseverance in the face of persecution. I've had to come kind of face to face with my own self and, and, and the fact that we as rich Western people for all of our privileges, and they are immense, I think are at a stark disadvantage here. We have been duped into placing our hopes in money 
or our abilities and success in the state, education, the idea of democracy itself, technology, social status, health, diet, self-actualization, you name it. We are being given counterfeit gospels at every turn, and we are being duped into placing our hope into things that actually can't save us. But that's not the hardest part. The hard part is that we have so much at our fingertips that we can endlessly distract ourselves. Endlessly distract ourselves with things that ultimately have no value or meaning. We have so many resources that we will never come to the end of them if we work hard at it until it's maybe too late. And sadly, I think our ideas about church and the Christian life have ended up mirroring much of this. These false hopes, these addictions to noise and entertainment. As I said last week, the church at Corinth was obsessed with status and power and celebrity leaders, much like the church in the West today. And we, much like the Corinthians, assess churches and leaders and ministries by what can be seen, by glitter and glitz and personality and pizzazz. And the leaders of the churches, may God have mercy on us, have been attempting to build on the shifting sands of social status and book deals and influence and slick marketing rather than the offensive weakness of the apostolic stigmata, the marks of Christ's death being carried about in the body of his church. I want to read from you what Paul has to say to Corinth in his first letter. It's a whole chapter, all right? But I couldn't figure out where to cut it off because it's just, it's so good. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, 
The builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you, together, are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. You should become fools so that you may become wise. The cards are stacked against us to have a vibrant eschatological hope. Because most of us, for most of our lives, have been able to sort of handle almost everything that's come our way. What does it look like to become a fool for Christ in order to become wise? There's actually just some really basic practical things. Do you tithe your money to God at the beginning of the month? Or do you wait and see what comes up and then give what's left over? Do you spend time with people who can't help you in your career or your social status? Or do you only stay with those who can enhance your own personal fulfillment? Do you wait before the face of God's silent, imperceptible spirit tuning your ears to the thin silence of his speaking, or do you impatiently act and fill your life with noise to avoid the pain of God's quietness? Don't you know? You who have been baptized, that you have been baptized into Christ's death, into frailty and failure, into the relinquishing of everything, so that you may receive what you cannot take for yourself, which is eternal life, resurrection life. Do you hear in the midst of Paul's stinging rebuke the good news of the gospel? You have been given everything. Or as he says in our text this evening, or this morning, we switch to mornings. As he says in the text we had read this morning, everything is for your sake. Everything is for your sake. Friends, the hope that the world offers requires you to claw and climb and close your fist tightly around what's yours. And like water in a clenched fist, the tighter you hold, the more it leaks out. But the hope that Christ offers is a hope that overflows. It is a hope that never gives out. It is the hope of life in the dimension of God's kingdom, life lived in God's presence, and it is offered to all, and it only requires open hands, hands that are willing to be empty so that they can be ready to be filled. 
Now, if you'll allow me as we close, just one liturgical nerd application, okay? If you were with us last summer, you may recall from our series on worship that in Israel's sacrificial system, the person offering the sacrifice, right, that they would, they would bring their sacrifice to the priest and the priest would offer it up. The person offering the sacrifice had a clear idea, or at least should have had a clear idea, that it was them on the altar, that the victim, the lamb or the goat or the bird, was a stand-in for the offering of themselves. And so too with us, as is made clear in our Eucharist prayers, we are offering ourselves, our souls and bodies, in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And while our days of obligation in the Anglican tradition aren't as strict as our Roman brothers and sisters, there is still this expectation for those that have been baptized and confirmed in the church that unless reasonably prevented, you will be at the Eucharist liturgy. Why? It's because it is here that we offer ourselves unto God and are remade into our true selves, into the temple of God's Spirit. This is the place that we come and learn how to open our hands so that they can be filled. The muscle memory of the Eucharist liturgy is important and instructive here because I think it can help us to focus our eyes on what cannot be seen and teach us to open our hands in offering. If you've noticed, when I'm saying the Eucharist prayers at the altar, I tend to pray like this, right? The priest does this. This is called orans, which is a medieval term that basically is translated the one who prays or pleads. And what I'm doing is I'm opening my hands to collectively offer all of us all that we have, all that we are, unto God in thanksgiving, which is what Eucharist means, right? Gratitude, thanksgiving. So I encourage you this week, as you go out to be priests in the world, when you have an opportunity to be generous with your money, imagine holding your hands in Orans as the one who prays and pleads. When you have an opportunity to be compassionate with your time, imagine offering a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving when you feel the imperceptible tug of the Spirit to come away and spend time with Him in prayer and meditation upon God's Word, offer yourself up with hands open. And soon, little by little, we will become so accustomed to generosity and sacrifice, we will become so fashioned into the icon of Christ that our hands will remain open to receive the eschatological hope of eternal life. And our eyes will have been trained to see what cannot be seen. And one day, the thing, the person that cannot be seen to us right now will appear and we will be made like him for we shall what? See him as he is. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.